Good to be with you again this morning. I would ask you at the outset to, uh, to in addition to 1 John 3, turn to Genesis chapter 4. You will need to put a marker in your Bible there. I wonder if, uh, if is there anyone who needs a bulletin? that didn't pick one up on the way, raise your hand if you, if you need one. Okay. Well, John was on one of his main topics in today's passage, love for the saints. John sought in this epistle to bring assurance of salvation to the hearts of true believers while putting, at the same time, a deep insecurity into the hearts of the unsaved. It is possible to know that you have eternal life. The measures, however, the measures to know if you have eternal life require a lifestyle of righteousness. In particular, John said throughout this epistle that you need to live a lifestyle that shows love for God, obedience to God, and love for the fellow believers. If your lifestyle shows love and obedience to God and love for fellow believers, you can know that you have eternal life. In this passage, he contrasted the heart of a murderer with the heart of a saint. The key verse is verse 14. You'll see it there. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. That's a quick and easy summary of the passage. John made use of two examples, Cain on the downside, Jesus on the upside, although he chose extremes as examples. Let's not imagine that, well, I'm not as bad as Cain, so I must be okay. And also let no one say, well, since none of us are like Jesus, I guess we're all off the hook. That will not work because John applied the story of Cain's hatred and he applied the story of Jesus' love to our lives. Though none of us are living as loving as Jesus and hopefully none as violent as Cain. The message from the beginning. This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. The beginning would seem to be a reference to the gospel as it was first brought to the particular recipients of the letter. This is the message that you heard from the beginning. We're not told specifically who the audience was, but we believe it was written to believers in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. History documents that John went to live in Ephesus, one of the seven churches. You remember those churches, Thyatira and Pergamum and Ephesus and the others. John also wrote that book. Now, it's unclear who first brought the gospel to Ephesus, but it was very likely the Apostle Paul. Whoever brought the gospel, an integral part of the gospel that was preached there was, you must love your Christian brothers and sisters. That corresponds with the command of Jesus given in John 13, 34, and 5. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, 
that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In reality, the command to love one another wasn't new. Jesus said the whole Old Testament was written about love. When he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's from Matthew 22. The commandment to love is infused in all of the Old Testament, but Jesus called his commandment new because there is an increased standard. The Old Testament standard was love your neighbor as yourself. The New Testament standard is love your neighbor in the same way that Jesus loved you. We have a higher standard for love in the New Testament economy since we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to empower us. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us, Romans 5, 5. Now for the negative example. Reading verse 12 in our passage here. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. And now if you would have your Bible open to Genesis 4, we're going to read that account starting at verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time her, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should, or you must, rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out from, to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Uh, what can we say about Cain? He was of the wicked one, verse 12. Not as Cain who was of the wicked one. Wicked people are of their father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, John eight forty four. So the devil was working out his murderous will through Cain. Now, I know some people want to feel sorry for Cain. Oh, he tried to bring an offering. But you see in verses 6 and 7 of Genesis 4 that Cain was just 
flat-out rebellious against God. Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain brought the wrong sacrifice with the wrong attitude. His problem wasn't that he innocently brought the wrong sacrifice. His problem was that he loved evil and hated righteousness. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. So you can stop feeling sorry for Cain if you were inclined to. But let's drop back to Genesis 4 and observe just a couple of other things about Cain. This is verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother? He said, I do not know him. I'm my brother's keeper. Refused responsibility. Now, this would have been the time, I should think, had I been in Cain's shoes, that I would have been coming clean. What was he thinking? The creator hadn't seen? The creator couldn't figure out what happened to Abel? The reality is that lying, like other sins, will be found out. Even if some of our lies and sins are never caught on earth, we know that God knows righteous living and pleasing God must be our top desire. Now, verses 10 through 14 there in Genesis 4. And he, God said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Self-pity. Instead of being alarmed and ashamed at his murder, saying, Dear God, please give me a second chance. There was none of that. This is often a story when people disobey God, their own sins get them in trouble, and then they're angry at God. Now let's look at how John applied the example of Cain. <clears throat> First thing he said was, the world hates Christians. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Now notice how the murder of Abel played out. I'm back in verse 8 of Genesis 4. Now Cain, Cain talked with his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. I wonder if Abel was completely taken by surprise. Now, today, if you walk down the street of Akron, you're well aware of the danger of assault, the danger of murder. But Abel, he'd never seen a murder. He may have never even seen a fight. Was he thinking, oh, Cain has a reason to hate me? Probably not. And here's part of the problem for us as Christians. We have a hard time imagining why anyone would hate us. Of 
We're just going around trying to live moral and righteous lives. What is there to hate? When Senator Bernie Sanders tells a Christian nominee for a cabinet position that your beliefs are indefensibly hateful and insulting and not what this country is supposed to be about, very close to a direct quote, we're shocked. Probably because in America, Christianity has been the majority faith for most of our existence, but we should not be surprised given that the most righteous of all people was crucified for his goodness and his truth and his mercy. And also, let me say that if if no one hates me, it probably means that my candle is not burning brightly enough to draw much attention. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When I hide my light, thus avoiding persecution, I am missing out on God's blessing. And I would hate to admit how many blessings I've missed out on because my light wasn't burning very brightly. What about you? John said the lack of love means that a person is spiritually dead. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. There's an acid test of the soul. See, the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. If there's no love emanating from us, we should not suppose that the Holy Spirit is there pouring love into us. It's a matter of sheer logic. The Holy Spirit is the most powerful force in the universe. If he's busy pouring love into our hearts and none comes out of us, we can know that we abide in spiritual death. The converse is true. If we love the brethren, it proves that the Holy Spirit is in us since true love never existed in us by nature. In our spiritually dead state, we did not pursue fellowship. When the love of God has been poured into us, we pursue relationships with fellow believers. And if you are here today feeling distinctly a desire to remain aloof from people, it shows that you have much soul-searching to do. The love of God poured into your soul will spill over onto others. It can't help but do so. When water is poured into a cup, at some point, the water is going to fill the cup and overflow. It spills out. Ideally, in a church, each person's cup of love is overflowing and it spills out on other believers, blessing them and comforting them and encouraging them and forbearing with them on their shortcomings and displaying an attitude of ready forgiveness. In other words, when we have passed from death to life, we became a vital part of a growing organism in which we use our spiritual gifts to bless each other, we greet each other, we communicate each other to, with each other, we seek to understand each other. We share lives together. 
Christian life is meant to be lived out together as a community of believers. Now listen to the description of the church, early church in Acts. It's chapter 2, starting at verse 42. And they, the believers, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread and in prayers, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. When we have passed from death to life, we will begin to feel the stirrings of this desire to live out our life together in community. Hatred is as good as murder. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, when there is no love for the brethren, this is just John just talked about, that means a person is spiritually dead. Now, here, is, here he addresses the logical extension of the lack of love, which is active hatred. When we hate, it's moved beyond the laissez-faire attitude of no love to where we now actively detest other believers. Cain actively detested his brother. Now notice, though, a person becomes a murderer, not when he slays a person, but at the time when hatred takes up residence in his heart. A man who hates has the venom of murder coursing through his veins. Now, whether or not that venom ever strikes an actual murder depends on various factors. Very few people with hatred in their hearts actually commit murder. Why? Fear. Fear of punishment. Fear of jail. Fear of being discovered for who they really are. And so hatred remains hidden in the hearts of men and women. But active hatred in the judgment of God amounts to murder. No murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Any person with active hatred in their heart wishing ill toward other believers, detesting some other believer, wishing another believer would be out of the way or didn't exist, has no eternal life. Now, don't confuse hatred with anger. Anger is an emotion that in itself is neither good nor bad. Jesus was angry, but perfectly righteous. Well, you will experience anger. You're going to experience anger at fellow believers But allowing that anger to settle into hatred against a fellow believer shows that the love of God is not resident in your heart and you remain unsaved. So friend, you can know if you have eternal life. Do you love and desire fellowship with believers? Or do you despise, neglect, ignore, or have a burning contempt for other believers? 
Okay, that's enough with Cain. Let's talk about Jesus. Verse 16, by this we know love because he has laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, here, the apostle gave more definition about what love is really like. So you can know you have eternal life when you love the brethren. Okay, but what is love? Is that like, oh, you know, I love ice cream or, uh, uh, you know, I, I love my dog. You know those bumper stickers, I, I, I heart my dog, you know those? Yeah. So I'm thinking about putting some together that say, I heart my congregants. How many of you are going to sign up to put it on your car? Four. All right, so I'll keep the order small. The word for love used here is agape, but it might be helpful to review the vocabulary that John was familiar with, which is Greek. So there, there is several Greek words commonly used for love, at least four of them. Eros, defined as sexual love, which is generally um, spoken of as a low-level love and a desire to get rather than give. Then there is storge, defined as natural familial love, like the love a mother has for her child. Phileo, a brotherly affection. The love of friendship, something we might compare to a confidant. An example would be David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. It's the highest love that we can attain without God's love being poured into our heart. And then there is this word, agape, a changeless love that gives without expecting anything in return. It's love that flows from the heart of the giver. It loves through rejection. It loves because it wants to love. When Jesus laid down his life for us, it was love that came from the heart of God. It was not an investment only where God was calculating risks and benefits. Uh, let's see, eh, if I send Jesus, you know, what am I going to get in return? Eh, is it going to pay for my investment and make profit? Rather, the gospel is a reflection of what is in God's heart because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, the story of Jesus and the story of Cain are miles apart. Jesus shed his righteous blood that the unrighteous may become righteous. Cain shed Abel's blood that the unrighteous could continue in unrighteousness. Jesus shed his blood that the unrighteous may live. Cain shed Abel's blood that the righteous may die. Jesus shed his blood, demonstrating his great love for us. Cain shed Abel's blood, showing his great love for himself. Jesus died that God's kingdom on earth might grow. Abel died that God's kingdom on earth might be snuffed out. Jesus shed his blood that our unrighteousness may be atoned for. Cain shed Abel's blood that his unrighteousness may not be pricked by conscience. Now, the rest of the passage is given to application from the life of Jesus that we might understand what true love is. 
We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We are ultimately servants. Now, the question here, does John mean by this our actual physical lives? Well, it could include that. Look at the verse again. By this we know love because Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We are under moral obligation to literally lay down our lives for the brethren if that should be called for, though I don't think we will be called to do that. Our laying down our lives for the brethren generally ends up being in a figurative way. A few people end up taking a literal bullet for the sake of God's people. The rest of us are to be ready to take a metaphorical bullet for believers. Now, there's no doubt in the New Testament that believers were not in a prosperous situation such as we are in America. Some words from the book of Hebrews explains this. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me, now the author says, in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So we know that the believers were subjected to plundering and the plundering was connected to their love for the author of this book while he was in prison. How did that how did that plundering happen? Well, probably one of two ways. While the Christians left their home to bring relief to the prison, others came and plundered their homes, knowing that there was no legal recourse for a Christian to get anything back. Or, secondly, Christians were hated, and by their visiting and bringing relief to the imprisoned Christians, they themselves became clear targets for plundering. Now, the upshot of this is that believers were often the poorest of the poor in a culture that didn't have the abundance which we have to begin with. That helps us to understand the coming verse. But whosoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, the world's goods here should be understood to be means of livelihood. So here, one Christian lived down the road from another, and this man's home was plundered, perhaps destroyed, and the other believer walks by and sees this family in a temporary lean-to with nothing but the clothes on their back. Now, if this man, if this Christian man has resources, he has but one path. He must provide from his abundance for the poor family. Within any church of Jesus Christ, believers are to keep eyes open for persons in need of provision. It says, seize his brother in need. 
There, see, there, there's an art to seeing your brother in need. Unfortunately, there is also an art to being willfully ignorant. Back in the book of Second Peter, we saw the use of that phrase, willfully ignorant. Of this they are willfully ignorant. Willful ignorance happens when people intentionally won't hear or look at what they know or presume to be there. At the time we were covering this, I gave you the illustration of my uncle when he took us on a Christmas bird count when he would say, we'll park here and walk around and don't look at the signs. Because the signs said, no trespassing. Now, you can understand why someone would fail to see the physical needs around them because they rationalize that it will make them innocent of the next problem in the verse and shuts up his heart from him. We don't like to encounter human needs when we're unwilling to meet them. And so when I'm out driving around and I see some forlorn guy sitting up against his car with a flat tire... I have an uncomfortable feeling, you know, that. Maybe I should stop and help. I'm sure something like that has happened to you. And that's when you start to have certain thoughts that defend yourself, right? He's probably already called for help. AAA will take care of him. But in the case of a stranded driver, you may have good reason not to stop. You may be on a schedule and you may not have time. You may have safety concerns. You may not have the means or knowledge to help. But in the church, none of those excuses stand. But let me say that in this church, I have a great amount. I see a great amount of compassion on these matters of physical need. I see people more than willing to pick up for the needs as they arise, and I've observed that happening. My bigger concern, actually, is, is people won't make their needs made known. I, I wish we had an atmosphere where people were more willing to come forward and say, I can't pay my electric bill right now. I need help with medical bills. This is a very generous church. I'm 100% confident that these kinds of needs will be taken care of if, if, if they come to the light. So caring for physical needs... But we live in a different time and in different economic conditions, so let's consider some other needs probably much more pertinent to this church. We'll, we'll call them emotional needs. Although that's a broad, broad category, they might be social needs, they might be spiritual needs. As we'll probably not need to spend too much time and energy meeting physical needs. Emotional needs. That's a different story. Where there is a lonely person, will we go out of our way to include them as valuable members of the family? Where there is a depressed person, will we take the time to try to understand? Where there is an annoying person, will we make special effort to bear with them? 
where there's a person from a different socioeconomic class where we humbly address them as our peer and friend. Where there is an anxious person, will we go out of our way to calmly express our support and convince them that they are safe? Where there is an awkward person, will we smooth over the pauses and the stuttering and chat amiably with them? Where there is a person slipping in faith, will we pray with them? Where there is a hurting person, will we cry with them? Where there is a person rejoicing, will we rejoice with them? Where there is a sinning person, will we humbly go to them to restore them? Where there is a shy person, will we take the uncomfortable step of greeting them? Friends, this this is what the church is made up of, these people. We are all part of the above list at some time at least. And more than a few of us us are somewhere in that list even as I speak. We need to notice them. We need to watch carefully for them. You and I are commanded to build up the church, causing it to be edified. If we see needs in the church body, whether physical, emotional, social, spiritual, and we are failing to apply the resources we have to these needs, we personally need to apply the question of verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? That leaves us with verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Since the love of God has been poured into us, it must pour out of us in actions. Let's pray that our lives more and more reflect this reality. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be here this morning, and I am thankful for this church body, Father. It is so generous and so kind, and, and uh, Father, it is, it is a privilege week to week to show up here and minister. And yet, Father, you know that even in our lives as believers, we need challenged many times. Father, in pursuing love for the brethren, we ask, Father, that you would help us to show love in very real actions, in words too, but not in words only, in words and in actions. We ask that you'd be with us as we continue to worship this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.